From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. When I say the word change, what do you think? Do you think loss? Do you think challenges? Or do you think what you should be thinking, which is opportunity? Because change is your greatest opportunity, as long as you're willing to treat it that way. In my new book, Build for Tomorrow, I show you how by diving headlong into what change does to you and how you can use it to your advantage. I found that everyone goes through change in four phases. They are panic, adaptation, new normal, and wouldn't go back. And that the most successful people simply move through those phases faster. So how do they do it? That's what I spent years studying and came away with concrete steps that you can take to lessen your panic, adapt faster, define your new normal, and thrive going forward. Reinvention is not about grit. It's a process anyone can learn. My book, Build for Tomorrow, can show you how. You can pre-order it now from anywhere you get books or at jasonpfeiffer.com slash book. Again, that book is called Build for Tomorrow. Now, on with today's episode. Here is what I had been told about Penny Pennington, the managing partner of Edward Jones. I had been told that Penny has this very specific philosophy about work, which is thrive, don't just survive. But here's what I didn't expect her to say when I asked her about it. It's three pieces of advice that I've learned through my own experience and that frankly, Jason, I continue to relearn and reaffirm for myself and have to remind myself of on a very frequent basis. So here's the part of that I didn't expect to hear. Penny, who has had a very accomplished career, which we'll talk about more in a second, still has to remind herself of this advice, that it doesn't matter exactly what stage of your career you get to or the the level of success that you have or the odds that you overcome, you still, even someone like Penny, still needs to turn back to this foundational advice and remind yourself of it and absorb it, reabsorb it over and over again. That's exactly right. I say all the time, I am a leader who is learning out loud. And as uncomfortable as that may be to know that I don't know it all and then to say it out loud, what I've found is that it invites and engages people into innovation and creativity and co-creation. That if I put a lid on things and said, oh, I've got all the answers, first of all, that would just be dead wrong. And we, we miss tons of opportunity if I or I believe any leader takes that kind of what I believe is an old fashioned tack. leadership. So, okay, let's just back up for a second and get a little more context for Penny. Sure. I have had a finance career for about 35 years. For 14 years, I was in investment and corporate banking. I've been with Edward Jones for about 22 years now. First six years here as a financial advisor right outside of Detroit, Michigan, and since 2006 in home office leadership here at our headquarters in St. Louis. And Penny's leadership isn't just wise and successful. It was also newsmaking in 2018 when it happened. I'm just going to read straight from the Wall Street Journal article at the time. Edward Jones has named Penny Pennington as its new head, the only woman to lead a major U.S. brokerage firm as the industry scrambles to attract more female advisors and assets. So here is someone 
who is occupying a very rare role, who is still very willing and comfortable to say, I don't know certain things. And I'm turning back to that foundational advice that I had even at the beginning of my career. Penny and I had a really wonderful conversation about leadership, both philosophically and then also how she led Edward Jones through some challenging times recently. And I want to play it for you. I just think it's a wonderful, wonderful insight into how to be a better leader and how to inspire others. So after the break on Problem Solvers, how to thrive, not just survive. By now, you've probably heard all about cryptocurrencies. You might even already be investing in them. But did you know that you can invest in cryptocurrencies through your retirement account? That's right. With iTrust Capital, you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies from a crypto IRA and get all the same tax advantages as a traditional IRA iTrust Capital allows you to invest in over two dozen of the most popular cryptocurrencies, and unlike the stock market, you can buy and sell 24 hours a day. The iTrust Capital platform is easy to use, and it takes only a few minutes to create your account. Setting up an IRA is free, and iTrust has no account opening fees and no monthly fees. It's time to start taking control of your financial future. With iTrust Capital, you can get all the tax benefits of a retirement account while investing in crypto. Sign up today and receive a $100 funding bonus when you open and fund an account. Visit itrust.capital slash problem solvers to start investing today. That's itrust.capital slash problem solvers. Taxes and conditions apply. Fees apply. Cryptocurrencies are a speculative investment with risk of loss. Itrust Capital Inc. does not provide legal investment or tax advice. Consult with a qualified legal investment or tax professional. All right, we're back. So I'm going to begin the conversation by picking up on something you heard Penny talk about a moment ago. She was speaking about how her style of leadership, being open to saying that she doesn't know things and turning to others for ideas, is um, well, is in contrast to a kind of old-fashioned leadership where the leader knew everything and could never be at fault. And so I asked her, speaking of old-fashioned, was that a kind of leadership you saw, I'm not asking you to name names, but as you were coming up and working for people, did you see that kind of mindset and, and, and how, did you, how did you develop a different one? I've worked for and in some great organizations and side-by-side with tremendously creative leaders. It is indisputable, though, that the world is moving faster than it ever has before. Our industries are being disrupted like never before. Our lives are being changed like never before. So in the past, it might have been okay to go a little slower, to say that you knew enough answers to, you know, to continuously improve for the next year or five years. So this is all about relativity and it's all about speed. And so I think more and more today, it is simply not possible for a leader to purport that they have all the answers. You know, it's funny, I hadn't really thought about that before because I always think of when you're contrasting these two styles of leadership, one in which somebody leads with outwardly 100% confidence and another one where a leader is comfortable saying, I don't know, why don't we figure it out? Or I'm not exactly sure, but that's why I have you here. That well, the, the second one is just more modern by the way in which we think about growth and leadership, but also is just because we evolved our leadership styles in the way that we evolve everything else. But I hadn't really thought about that it is probably also a product of, and this is the thing that you're just suggesting here, it's a product of the work environment that we're in, where maybe a couple of decades ago, the leader of a company could rest fairly well assured that the thing that they're doing 
one year will be roughly the same as they're going to be doing five to 10 years later because technology hasn't changed that much. The industry hasn't changed that much. Maybe the economy hasn't changed that much. But Mm -hmm. now every single day, week, month, year, you have to anticipate that something is going to change. And you're saying that just requires a different kind of leader in order Mm -hmm. to thrive. Yes. I've been reading a lot recently, Jason, about the progress of our economy from an agrarian economy to a product-based economy to a service-based economy, and now moving already there to an experience-based economy where we as consumers are investing in experiences. We want to make memories. Buying products is has been more commoditized. And so as we think about the experiences that we want as consumers and the experiences that we as companies want to provide that are valuable um, to our clients and stakeholders, that requires a level of exploration, of discovery, of intuition, of personal discovery and discovery with and and for our clients that really invites us to be discoverers and not know-it-alls, learn-it-alls rather than know-it-alls. It is a different kind of leadership. It is still one that requires decision-making, right? At some point, we as leaders are called upon to make some, some small decisions, mostly some large decisions. And so that provides boundaries around the future that we want for our companies, the experiences that we're trying to deliver to clients and the decisions that we make around those. But the act of discovery and rediscovery of consumers, of stakeholders, of those that we're seeking to serve invites a different kind of leadership, I believe. You know, Penny, in a minute, I'm going to ask you to go backwards a little bit. And we're going to talk about how you developed the philosophy of leadership that you have. But because we've been talking kind of abstractly now, but in a way in which I think really informs the kind of leader that you are. I was wondering if you could maybe share an example more recently from Edward Jones and maybe a decision that you had to make or a change that had to be made and how this kind of philosophy guided what you did. Well, I think about the urgencies of the last two years and changes that we had to make in order to continue to have an experience of deep relationship building between our financial advisors and our clients and prospective clients. Our company has been built on deep, trusted relationships now for 100 years. We are in more communities than any other financial services company. We have a brick and mortar location in two-thirds of the counties of the United States. We have 15,000 branches all over North America. And so our history is built on being face-to-face with our clients in the same airspace as our clients. Now, obviously... Not so easy. Not so easy. Come (laughs) March of 2020, within five days, we had to arrange for the eventuality that we would not be able to see our clients face-to-face. We thought it might be for weeks of course, it became months and then then up to a couple of years. And so we had to make the decision that was a business decision, yes, but it was also an experience decision. It was a decision that pivoted pretty dramatically from the way that we have traditionally been oriented to ensure that we could all be remote. Now, many, many companies did this. It was kind of obvious. But at the same time, the, the, the concern that we had to have 
And the question that we had to answer was, what does that do to the experience? And how do we ensure that the experience that our clients are having and that our branch teammates are having in each of those branches is still one that elicits that kind of trust and relationship building? And so what we had to do then very quickly from that was to build a set of resources a set of ideas, a set of mindset shifts. And Jason, we were talking earlier about mindset, about thinking. We had to build a set of supports that helped everyone shift their mindset to recognize that we could deliver an experience. We could relieve anxiety for our clients. We could keep them on track for their financial plans without actually being in the same airspace. And one of the things that has been so affirming to me is that this actually worked very well, that our clients have have stayed very engaged, that their outcomes, their goals are being defined and achieved even through through the urgencies of the last couple of years. So maybe that's one example that I'd provide. You know, that answer makes me think because of the language that you used about the historical evolution that you talked about started with an agrarian society, turned into a product, then a service, and then an experience. It sounds to me like you really take that to heart and that you're just not thinking about the service that you provide, but the experience that you provide, because those go hand in hand, but they're also distinct things. And one of the things you could have thought about as you were trying to figure out, well, okay, how do we continue despite the method in which we do business changing is you could have thought, well, Let's just figure out how to continue to provide the service, the level of Mm -hmm. service. But that's not what you thought. The word I heard out of your mouth over and over again, there was experience. You weren't just thinking about the service because service is a service. People don't have an emotional attachment to a service, but an experience is something where people feel like they got to stick around for. So can you take me a little bit more into that kind of thinking and, and why that is where you're so focused? Yes. And you did what is perfect and natural in talking about experience. You put the word feeling next to it. We can drive as a company, we can drive elements and actions to elicit an experience from our clients. But our clients are the ones who define the experience they're having. They tell us if they've had an experience where they feel, and here it is, this is very exact, and we have studied it, and this is the experience that we want for our clients to feel understood, informed, in control, secure. And when they feel those things, they are confident. They're confident in their financial futures, and they're confident in the guidance and the guide, the financial advisor and branch team and our firm who is serving them. And so we build products, services, experiences around things that will relieve anxiety, that will help our clients have those feelings. Because when they have those feelings, they're able to to achieve possibilities in their lives that we can help guide them to. Right. Which is a wonderful way to think because, of course, that's not maybe how somebody outside your company would assume you're thinking. They would think, mm-hmm. well, you're thinking numbers. You're a, you're a numbers-driven mm-hmm. organization. But of course, you could deliver the greatest numbers. But if your customer doesn't feel confident that you're doing that, they might leave anyway. So you've realized that this has to be an experience and a feelings-based company as much as anything else. That's right. And we have we have been affirmed in that in the last couple of years. During the pandemic, we did the largest study of retirees and pre-retirees 
investors in America that has ever been done to ask them questions about how are they thinking about their financial future. And it was interesting, Jason, we thought, should we do this during the pandemic? I mean, is this a disrupted time and is not the right time to be asking these questions? Then we rethought it and thought, oh my gosh, this is the perfect time. Right, no better time. In consumers and investors, what they're thinking. Well, here's what we found. And it goes to your point. Are we a numbers company that are solely focused on on investments in the stock market? Well, those are important factors. Those are important tools, very necessary tools that we utilize. But what we found in this study is that what's on people's minds and what they want to talk to their guide, their financial advisor about, is their own purpose, their health, their family, and how all that then affects their financial plan. You'd think they wanted to talk about their financial plan first. Actually, what we found is that people, people, there have been more changes in people's purpose, their values, and what they see as important over the past two years than there had been for many years before that. And so all of that life plan plays out in one's financial plan and becomes a really important part of the experience for us as advisors and guides to be prepared and have the tools and the skill, frankly, to have a discussion like that. That's what consumers and investors are expecting and demanding from a financial advisor today. That is such a fascinating insight. Did that insight change anything about the way that you related to your consumer or was that Mm -hmm. validating to what you were already thinking about them? It is validating to us in that we have always focused on a deep, trusted, personal relationship with the client. We call it smart consistency. That has a lot to do with the investment philosophy and the tools and the strategies that we use. Smart consistency, using a well-founded process and hyper-personalization, giving each client, each family, the experience of knowing that they are unique in their purpose, their concerns, what's important to them. So this was affirming to trust and relationship building and hyper-personalization. What it ramped up the urgency on for us was recognizing that clients were recalibrating what they saw as trusted and that they are looking for folks who really do understand their needs and their goals, who are helping them put in place a financial plan that helps them achieve that, that are constantly rediscovering in that relationship how things might be changing in their lives because change things are changing in their lives quickly. The consistency of that experience is what consumers now are saying is a deep, trusted, personal relationship. And so that the urgency around the services, the products and experiences that elicit that is really goading us for being the best that we can possibly be for our clients and our prospective clients. Hmm. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we will dive into the Thrive Not Survive philosophy with Penny. Are you a small business owner? Did you know that Visa's online small business hub has tools, discounts, and resources to help you run your business? So whether you're a business beginner or an entrepreneurial expert, find the solutions, tools, and tips you need to help take your business to the next level. Plus, if you have a Visa business credit or debit card, you can get access to cardholder benefits like Visa Savings Edge, a savings program which can help you save on everyday business expenses like office essentials, travel, and more. When you enroll your Visa 
business card in Visa Savings Edge, you'll have access to valuable offers which can help turn qualifying business purchases made with your enrolled Visa business card into savings for your business. Learn more at visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Once again, that's visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Visa, a network working for everyone. All right, we're back. And now here's more of my conversation with Penny Pennington. What you're describing is leading a company through a very, very interesting time where you, of course, have to maintain the same high level of service and value, but you have to start thinking about the evolving perceptions and needs of the consumer in a different way to reach them and to understand how to earn and keep their confidence. So that requires steady and bold leadership. Which brings me to what we had teased at the beginning of the conversation here, which was your concept of thrive, don't just survive. I'm curious. I want to talk through the three main points here, which you have boldly proclaim your passions, never disqualify yourself and never say no. But before we get into them, can you just tell me a little bit about when this kind of thinking started to solidify? Where were you in your career? And maybe what were you reacting to where you realized you needed a, a philosophy like this? It came at me and to me and for me during my leadership journey at Edward Jones as a financial advisor building a practice that I wanted to embody all of these things that I've been talking to you about, the brand and the value proposition of Edward Jones that's so strong, that is so rooted in, in trust. It also came to me and for me as I, as I developed my own skills around leadership, leadership in my local region leadership in our home office and in our management and leadership structures in reflecting on how I, what I was learning, what was working, and what was killing my joy. These are the three pieces of advice, as I said earlier, that have been constantly reaffirmed for me over the last 22 years. So let's talk through them. I'm just going to, I would just want to hear you extrapolate each because they're both big ways of thinking. So let's start with boldly proclaim your passions. And I'll say purpose and passion, Jason, Mm. because I think the wellspring of our energy and our joy comes from our own personal purpose. The reason we feel that we were put on this earth, and I could say it from a spiritual place, I think that's planted in us. There's nothing we can do about it. And we are most joyous and most successful when we know we're living into it. It does take a little reflection to determine what it is and maybe a little life experience to determine what it is. And I've found in my own life that you simply can't shut me up or wipe wipe the smile off my face when I am proclaiming a better future for investors, for our clients, for our prospective clients, for our colleagues, the 50,000 incredible people who work at Edward Jones for the thousands of communities where we live and work and serve. I am constantly talking about our role and what we can and should be doing in providing that kind of brighter future. So loudly proclaiming that, living into that, I just invite everyone to find it for themselves and then find a place, no matter where it is, that they can plant themselves, bloom and thrive in proclaiming that. I love that advice and have offered similar advice. Something that I found really useful for myself and that I often suggest people do, and I'm telling you because I'm curious if you've ever gone through a process like this yourself, is to try to distill down my purpose in one sentence Mm -hmm. so that you have a real clarity of it and Mm -hmm. to really push yourself to have that sentence 
not include the specifics of the job you happen to be doing because, of course, that job may change. The way that you deliver that job may change. So I really went from my own evolution is where I started. I started as a newspaper reporter. I loved being a newspaper reporter. I would have just told you I'm a newspaper reporter and then a mm-hmm. magazine editor. And mm-hmm. anyway, I finally came up with this sentence for myself, which is I tell stories in my own voice. Very intentionally, doesn't contain any kind of medium. It's not podcasting, mm-hmm. it's not magazines, it's not newspapers. And it also has some terms in it in my own voice that I'm not doing it in other people's voices or for other people's purposes. I'm curious if you've ever gone through a process like that yourself or how you've distilled down with such clarity your own purpose and the company's purpose. Yes. For our company, we have distilled it into three words, purpose, action, impact. That's how we think about the experiences, the innovation, the value that we are working to create and recreate for our clients all the time. For myself, I'm similar to you. I apply my own purpose statement very broadly in my life, in my family, in my community work, and at my job. And so I think you're exactly right. It's not about, you're not defined by your job or your career or where you work. It's It's think about this purpose and passion and your entire the entire portfolio of your life. Let's move on to the next one. Never disqualify yourself. It's mm-hmm. funny because I don't know that anyone would ever say, oh, I like to disqualify myself. But I think that the reason that it's there is because we may be doing that despite ourselves. We actively do it sometimes. And frankly, Jason, and the, you know, look at me or listen to me. I'm a woman in the finance industry, which has traditionally been more male dominated. And there have been times and there have been there have been examples where I've looked around the room and been, quote unquote, the only one there. Felt a little alone, perhaps, or or felt I didn't belong sometimes. And so wonder if I should disqualify myself or wonder if someone else was disqualifying. So the advice here is not to actively do that to ourselves. I have done it in the past. There was one time in particular that I actively, among a group of peers, a very, a very supportive group of peers, we were working on putting a new person in a new role. And I actively disqualified myself from consideration for that role. Now, I also confidently stated, this is my point of view. These are some guiding principles about what I believe that person should be thinking and doing, the person that we choose, but I'm not qualified for the role. Interestingly enough, I went home and told my husband about that. And he's the one who made the observation about what I had done and very sternly suggested that I I do something to fix that situation. I'm so thankful that he saw it happening in real life and that I had the courage, but more importantly than that, I had the support from my peers to go back to that table and say, I think I made a mistake. I believe these things about where this role should be pointed and what this person should be thinking. I believe these things, though I have not done all the jobs associated with this role before. I do think I'm qualified and I'd like to raise my hand for it. And it worked out and I I accepted. I was offered and it was accepted, accepted that new role. So it's just a very poignant reminder of how we need to be vigilant about how we're qualifying and disqualifying ourselves, especially as it relates to our purpose and our passion. Yeah, I love I love that it reminds me for what it's worth of a of moment very similar to you where I had learned that the, the, a friend introduced me to the idea that someone would pay me 
to come and speak at their event. That, has, that had not occurred to me. This was years ago. <laughs> and I said, how much do you think they would pay me? And he gave me a number. And I said, well, that is absurd. That's an absurdly large number. And then I, try, I tried it out. I reached out to a couple events. And when they asked what I charge, I couldn't give them the number that my friend told me because it just seemed too high. And so I started giving them half the number. And they hired me. And my wife said, stop that. <laughs> Like, what are you doing? And I said, oh, it's just not fair. I don't have the experience. Why would they pay me that amount? She said, stop, stop. Don't do that. You're undercutting yourself and you're undercutting the money we get for our family. Stop it. And yeah. so I started saying the, the the full rate and people paid it. I mean, they- About that. Right? I was discounting myself for absolutely no good reason. So you you make a really- Penny, let's, let's just hit the last one, which is never say no, especially sure. to the things that terrify you. Yeah. Well, I start with the piece of advice by saying never, never, never say no. And then I leave a pregnant pause because what's going on in people's minds is, Penny, that's exactly my problem. My calendar is too full. I don't have time for myself. I don't have time for the things I really love because I don't say no to anything. Again, this is this could be a little gender based as well, because women very often are counted on for a portfolio of care and nurturing and support that that's pretty broad. And so the tag to that is never say no to the thing, especially to the things that terrify you. We say yes very often to the things that are easy to do that everybody just knows they can count on us to say yes to. And actually, it's the things that terrify terrify us, that stretch our comfort zone, that are the experiences that lead us to greater confidence and greater impact. And those are the things that we need to say yes. Penny, this has been so inspiring. I appreciate you sharing your perspective and also how it has applied to your leadership at a just a, a, such a large and important institution that requires certainly the right kind of leadership to take it to a moment of a change and yet stability. It's, it's, it's an interesting balance and it's been really interesting to hear you talk about it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to you and your audience, Jason. And that's our episode. I would love to hear what you think and maybe even about a problem that you solved. You can find me at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com. Also, I have some more useful stuff for you. I write a newsletter about how to future-proof yourself and become more adaptable and optimistic. I would love for you to sign up. It is at jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. Also, check out my other podcast. It's called Build for Tomorrow. In each episode, I take on some belief that we have that holds us back from progress and show you why it is not as bad as you think. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media and comes out every Monday morning, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Deepa Shah for production. My name is Jason Pfeiffer. See you next week.